Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Normally, Sunday mornings, we have been in the book of Genesis. But as I was studying for the the second service sermon, uh, what we normally do in the afternoon, I realized this deserves two services back to back. And I don't think I would have done it the justice I should have if I just gave it a lick and a promise, so to speak, in, in the second service. Um, we need to focus on this foundational text for our Christian hope and faith. And I hope you have uh, an outline handout there. If you don't, there are more on the back table. Feel free to step up and, and get one. Titled this sermon from 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, The Dead in Christ and His Return. The Dead in Christ and His Return. First of all, I want to talk to you about, as we introduce this text, I want to talk to you about dead bodies, funeral homes, and empty comforts. Uh, How do people in our culture face death? How do they try to cope with it? Certainly not the only exposure I've had to this sort of thing, but during a year of side work assisting at a busy funeral home in the Detroit area, I spent significant time observing that sort of thing up close. I helped staff many funeral home visitations and a number of mourning funerals and gravesides elsewhere. Uh, Many of them at big Catholic churches in the area. It was a a funeral home uh, owned jointly by a Polish family and an Italian family. Naturally, a lot of Catholic funerals. Um, But they did provide funeral services for everyone of every background. Once I helped prepare a body for cremation, something most people don't get to see up close and personal. Uh, I occasionally had reason to go into the back room at that funeral home where bodies were being prepared for their caskets, and it reminded you of what death really looks like. And I even had opportunities to be the assistant um, with the removal specialist. When someone would die at home, the body had to be removed from the home to the funeral home. And so that was me and another man picking up the body, taking it where we could, uh, it could be worked on. Well, we do a lot to deal with death when it happens. We do a lot to mask the ugliness of death and honor the body of the deceased, and rightly so, that's proper. Um, there's all the details of the funeral or the memorial service. But aside from all that, One thing that always happens is that people offer condolences. People seek to offer words of sympathy and comfort. That's as it ought to be. But have you noticed how often those words really offer very little true comfort? Platitudes abound. Wishful thinking. Superstitious cliches. Um, they masquerade as common knowledge, like, well, everyone knows 
Um, that's not, not, nothing to be that bothered about. <laughs> He's with the angels now, people will say. She's in, a be- she's in a better place now. No real content to that, just she's in a better place now. Grandpa's watching over us now. They'll always be with you in your heart. These kinds of words often ring hollow. But, but what else is there to say if people are estranged from God and therefore they have no hope in the world? This life ran out for this person. I guess that's it. Today we come to Paul's words of comfort for those grieving the loss of Christian brothers and sisters. People who had turned from their sins to Jesus Christ as the only way to be forgiven of their sins and the only way to face God reconciled to him on the last day. Jesus who would give them eternal life. So these are Paul's words of comfort for those grieving Christian brother and sisters who had died. And at first glance, he's doing what was common in his day to do. In the face of death, people wrote a lot of letters of consolation back then. We still have many of them. And scholars who who read these old letters in Greek and Latin from that time, they uh, they've picked out some common things that come up in these old letters of consolation. What would people normally say in these letters? And Paul's teaching here about the dead, it echoes some of those characteristics that were often in those ancient letters. Um, one person has, has talked about six characteristics of these letters of consolation. Number one, death is inevitable, people would say. Number two, Death is the fate of all, kings and beggars, rich and poor. Number three, the person's memory and honor will live on in spite of death. Number four, death releases one from the evils of life. Well, they're free from suffering now. Are they? Number five, the funeral and the tomb are a great honor to the deceased. So you should be proud of the funeral arrangements and the casket, we would say today. Number six, either death is non-existence and does not matter to the dead, or it leads to some happier state of existence. So Gene Green, the commentator, says, after citing all that, he says, the consolation Paul extends to the Thessalonians shares a number of traditional elements, such as the call to minimize grief. I don't want you to 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 grieve too much. Uh, The need for mutual comfort. Comfort one another with these words, verse 18. And the explanation about the happy state of the dead. But, unlike the common letters of consolation, Paul roots his consolation in the resurrection of Jesus and his coming. Paul has something to say in the face of death that's solid, that's deep, that'll outlast this world. That's the text we have to tackle today. Let's read verses 13 through 18 of 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul writes to this church in Thessalonica, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. 
For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Glorious text. And this is actually only the first section of Paul's larger discussion in this letter about the Lord's coming. Because this discussion doesn't end here, it goes on into chapter 5, so we'll leave that for the next time. In chapter 5, he begins to talk about how we don't know the timing. Uh, You know that the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and he emphasizes then the terror and doom of the world without Christ when he comes. But that we are not in the night as they are. Christ will not catch us unprepared when he comes. And so we are encouraged, though the world will be terrified when Christ comes, we are encouraged by his coming. That's what awaits in chapter 5. And um, both this section at the end of chapter 4, then that section at the beginning of chapter 5, it's evident they hang together also, because if you compare them to Matthew 24, where Jesus talked about events surrounding his coming, um, there, there's, it's obvious, there's continuous depiction of the same thing. You, you see this, the same things basically said if, if you put them side by side all the way through. Well, as we're just in this, this first section here, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, the big idea here that we'll find is that since the risen Jesus will return, since that's true, Grief for departed Christians is overshadowed by resurrection glory. Let me say that again. Since the risen Jesus will return, grief for departed Christians is overshadowed by resurrection glory. There's still grief, but it's overshadowed by something very wonderful and something that's much better than death is bad. First of all, We look at verses 13 through 14, and this is one of those texts we really need to look at it almost word by word. It's it's, it's that packed with truth. Verses 13 through 14, Jesus' death and resurrection secure his people's resurrection at his coming. Paul is going to say, if we believe this, and we do, you know we do, you know this is our faith as Christians, and if this bedrock faith is true, then this is also true about dead believers. Jesus' death and resurrection secure his people's resurrection at his coming. So verse 13, Paul says, first of all, we should not grieve a Christian's death with the world's despair. Now notice he's not saying you may not not weep. He's not saying you may not express grief at this loss. What he's saying is, it's inappropriate to grieve in the same way that 
those outside Christ grieve. Because they don't have any hope. We should not grieve a Christian's death with the world's despair. Verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He uses this terminology about those who are asleep. Now, on the one hand, this was not a unique phrase to Christians or even Jews of the time. Everyone in this day, in the ancient literature, used this as, as uh, a way of speaking about the dead. Uh, in Greek, it was a figurative uh, figure of speech for death. Sleep was. But at the same time, the Old and New Testaments frequently use this concept of sleep to picture death, and there's much more packed into it for a believer in, in God, in Christ. Now, it's not talking about the fact that the soul is somehow asleep, unconscious at death. That's not true. Um, scripture plainly does not teach that. Plainly teaches the conscious blessing, for instance, of the, the believer after death in the Lord's presence. But the body, as it were, sleeps and is laid to rest, we say, right? There is rest from the toils of this life. The body is asleep, as it were. And the Christian's body will, in the future, awake from its slumber. That's also why it's so appropriate for us to talk about sleep here. The body will rise, the same body yet changed gloriously, to be like Christ's own glorious resurrection body, New Testament teaches. The new body will be reunited with the soul that has been in heaven, if we're talking about a believer. But as we think about how we should not grieve about Christians who are asleep, we should not grieve like others grieve who have no hope in the face of death. I want to read something from Robert Carr from his commentary. He says, in the pagan world in general, there was little hope of an afterlife and virtually no hope at all of an afterlife with a resurrected body. And even the few whose theology offered some kind of hope did not have the true hope in Christ. Ancient epitaphs for graves, you know what epitaphs are, right? These sayings people put maybe on their tombstone, that they want people to remember when they see their, their grave. Ancient epitaphs for graves reveal a significant difference between the hopelessness of pagans and the hope of Christians. A very common Latin abbreviation that was used on pagan tombstones translates as, I was not, I was, I am not, I care not. Talk about despair meaninglessness another ancient epitaph expressing a similar view reads we are nothing as we were before reader consider how swiftly we mortals drop back from nothing to nothing there's a letter from egypt in the second century a.d that ends with similar wording that paul said when he said therefore comfort one another with these words but it doesn't have the hope paul has says Irene to Teonif um, I won't try to pronounce that <laughs> Teonophorus, there we go, and Philo, take heart. 
I grieved and wept as much over the departed, it was a departed child of this couple, as for Didyman, uh, her own child. I, I, I grieved and wept as much over your departed child as I did for mine. I did everything that was fitting, as did my entire household, Epaphroditus, Thermuthion, Philon, Apollonius, and Plantus. But for all that, there is nothing that can be done in the face of such things. Therefore, comfort one another. Farewell. What despair. But that's the only thing that makes sense if you don't have God. Stiff upper lip. Well, we move on with life, and that's it. Those without God have no substantive hope. As Paul said to the church in Ephesus, largely Gentiles who did not know the true God before the gospel came to them. He said, Ephesians 2, verses 11 and 12, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's reality. But as Paul knows, the Thessalonians already know. To be a Christian is to have the greatest hope of all. You know, Paul's already made references to this hope all the way through this letter. There's there's a continual focus on Christ's coming, which is our hope. First Thessalonians one, two through three. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the mark that you are now Christians. You have a steadfastness of hope, a forward, future-looking certainty that's rooted in Jesus. But what is that hope in our Lord Jesus Christ? He says further down in that chapter, verses 9 and 10, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. He delivers us from God's coming wrath because we are waiting for him to come from heaven to get us. First Thessalonians 2, 19-20. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. An integral part of that hope is that we will be joined with all the rest of Christ's people at his coming. First Thessalonians three twelve through 13 And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So we should not grieve a Christian's death with the world's despair. Because, as the next verse affirms, verse 14, departed Christians will certainly join the risen Jesus at his return. Departed Christians will certainly join the risen Jesus at his return. Here in our ESV that I'm, I usually read from, verse 14 says, 
For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Uh, I prefer a little different translation. Um, There's good reasons for this, but uh, the, the 1995 NASB and the Legacy Standard Bible, they say this. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so... God will bring with him, that is, God will bring with Jesus, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Notice, uh, with that translation, that the majority of translations actually agree with, um, there's the point that, that the dead believers are those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, expressing their union with Jesus Christ which is such a huge topic for the Apostle Paul in his writings. They're asleep, but they're asleep. They're not just asleep like the rest. They're asleep in Jesus. And that makes all the difference. As Robert Carras says, not only is a dead Christian's soul with Christ in heaven, but even the body of a dead believer is still somehow connected to Christ while it lies in the ground. We could go elsewhere to prove this, that our union with Christ involves our body as well as our soul. Answer 86 of the Westminster Larger Catechism cites this verse in a footnote to show that our bodies, even in death, continue united to Christ. So our body will not be left behind forever. And, again, Robert Carr, he says, my view is that, what's being said here, is that God the Father will bring the resurrected Christians down to earth as part of the second coming, which includes their prior meeting with Christ in the air. We'll explain that as we go further in the text. But as I said, what's about to be said in this glorious hope is only true of those who died in Jesus. And it's only true because of Jesus' own death and resurrection. Apart from the gospel, apart from redemption accomplished at the cross and and the resurrection and then applied to those who believe, apart from that, you have no hope in death. You may be angry with me for saying that, and I'm very sorry if you have loved ones who have died without Christ, but that doesn't change the truth. And I cannot stand here and lie to you. Because I fear God. Only if you are in Jesus do you have hope in death. And the good news is you don't have to remain outside of Christ. Christ calls you to himself to believe in him and then you are one with him. And you'll never be separated from him. But you have to let go of your sin and believe in him as the only one who can make you right with God. Because he died for sinners taking the penalty of sins on himself. And he rose to give resurrection life, not just to himself, but to all who believe in him. To make them right with God, eternally happy with God. To make them God's children. But if we are in Jesus, this is our hope. We've covered the first point of the text, that Jesus' death and resurrection secure his people's resurrection at his coming. That was verses 13 through 14. Now we come to verses 15 through 18, and we will 
it'll take us long enough to really cover all that's here that we're not going to get through this second point this morning. We'll get a good ways through it, but we'll pick back up and finish it this afternoon. Verses 15 and 18 tell us that Jesus' own word confirms this glorious hope of joining him at his coming. Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He has all the authority to speak for Christ. And yet Paul gives us added added certainty or just an additional confirmation saying, this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. And most agree that what he's doing here, as he does elsewhere sometimes, is saying, look, the Lord Jesus spoke directly to this while he was on this earth. At least he said things that have direct implications for this. Paul doesn't use, he doesn't do a word-for-word quote from Jesus, but he summarizes and uses a lot of the same words to apply it to, uh, to the need of the Thessalonians' hearts here. This we declare to you by a word from the Lord. So verse 15 tells us that Christians alive at the Lord's arrival will have no advantage over departed Christians. Christians alive when the Lord returns will have no advantage over departed Christians. Deceased believers will miss out on nothing when Jesus comes back. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now here we have the the uh, the old problem of reading Paul's letters and only having one side of the conversation, right? What exactly what was the concern in the Thessalonians' hearts that Paul is trying to to address? Well, it's hard to pin it down exactly. It's unclear to us today exactly what was causing them angst. Were they were they unclear as to whether dead Christians would rise from the dead at all? Was that the problem? Or was it instead a question of whether the resurrection of those dead saints would happen in time so they could participate in the Lord's return, his public triumph? Good arguments have been made for either option there. Uh, one thing that was clear, and that is that Paul felt it was necessary to stress that death had nothing, um, that death brought nothing into the picture which would not be swallowed up in victory. Death had not relegated dead Christians to a less privileged or blessed status. Theirs was not now a shadowy, vague hope for the future. They weren't deprived of what they could have had if they had remained alive until Jesus' returned. So we don't know all the background in the Thessalonians' minds to this, but we know the central point Paul is making. Christians alive at the Lord's arrival will have no advantage over departed Christians. We will all participate in that coming of Christ together with the same level of glory. But now I'm going to really pause, and this isn't a detour, it's really just filling out for you what Paul is saying in very few words here. He talks about we who are left until the coming of the Lord. What is the coming of the Lord? The word for coming there is a common word for that event in the New Testament. The parousia of the Lord. I talked about this when we were in Matthew 24. 
um, probably at more length than I will today. Parousia becomes a technical term. You know, a technical term, it, it takes on a very specific meaning in a specific context. People just get used to it referring to a very specific thing. <laughs> Parousia um, is a technical term in the New Testament often for Jesus Christ's arrival in public power and glory. His coming, his arrival in public, visible power and glory. It does have that connotation of a coming. It was commonly used as a word for the public arrival of a high official to a city. The Caesars often would have a parousia coming to a city to visit it. We'll talk more about that later, but that uh, that was that included much pomp and circumstance. It was a huge event when it happened. So the Lord, uh, let me back up. Uh, so, the, so the word can mean arrival or coming. It also has the connotation, the other side of the coin, of presence. He's here. So the Lord comes to be present in glory for all to see. So the scripture describes this event, and this is an event that obviously exceeds our power to fully comprehend all the, all the angles on it. The scripture describes it. On the one hand, it's described as the Lord coming down or descending from heaven, as it says in this text. Coming, descending from his heavenly throne to this lowly world. And in some texts, pictured as bringing his enthroned glory from heaven to earth. But it's also described in scripture as an unveiling where people couldn't see his presence and his glory, but now they can't avoid seeing it. An unveiling to which the world has been blind. Because you know, Jesus Christ is reigning right now from heaven over everything. But one day, heaven will be opened and everyone will see Jesus on the throne. Whether they want to or not. That's also the idea of the parousia. The fact that there's another word used for the same event from which we get our word epiphany which means unveiling the curtain is pulled back gk beale notes about this concept he says revelation six fourteen refers to the end of the present cosmos in terms of a scroll that has been split and each of the two halves then rolled up if john were living today he might use the analogy of a stage curtain with pictures on it which is drawn from both sides to reveal the actors behind it. In short, the present physical reality will in some way disappear, and the formerly hidden heavenly dimension where Christ and God dwell will be revealed. And he makes scripture references. He says Paul is using the same imagery here, here in this text. Um, so he says, and Beale goes a little farther in some other things he says than I might, but he says, What's been traditionally understood as the second coming of Christ is best conceived as a revelation of his formerly hidden heavenly presence. The old world reality will be ripped away and the dimension of the new eternal reality will appear along with Christ's presence. When he appears, the present dimension will be ripped away and Christ will be manifest to all eyes throughout the earth. 
Now, for the sake of many of you who've heard a lot of strange teachings about this subject, the coming of Christ, I need to just mention two popular errors out there about it. I'm just mentioning it. Um, first, there's what we would call the dispensational error. Not saying they're heretics. There are lots of good brothers who are dispensationalists. I was one. Um, but the dispensational error is to divide this coming into two separate events. And they might say, well, it's still kind of the same event, but it's really two separate events. <laughs> And what they have to do with the text. So they say, well, first he'll come instantaneously to snatch away his church before there's a time of a really bad time on earth called the tribulation. Um, so dispensationalists say that's the pre-tribulation rapture. You've probably heard about that. And then they say after about seven years, Jesus will then come when everyone can see him come. He'll come publicly in glory about seven years later to destroy the wicked and to establish his visible kingdom. And so dispensationalists look at 1 Thessalonians 4 and they say, well, this is just the first of those two. This is the rapture of the New Testament church. This is not a resurrection for them of all God's people from all ages at the one and only second coming. Because there's really two for them. Um... But there's a, another error that's gaining in popularity. That is the preterist error. And again, um, well, some preterists are heretics. Some are not. Depends how far they take it. Uh, there are good brothers who are what they call partial preterists. But the preterist error regarding the parousia, the text which talk in that wording about the coming of Christ, their error is once again to say, well, there's more than one. At least partial predators would say this. So they would say, well, that word parousia, that, uh, Jesus often used that word to describe a spiritual coming or a providential display of his glory. And they tie it to AD 70 when the Romans were sent to destroy Jerusalem and its temple. Obviously, I'm not going into that whole topic, but they say, so he came spiritually in 70 AD or providentially or something like that. He'll come personally, partial preterists would say, he'll come personally later. Um, as I said, most preterists are not outright heretics. They would call themselves partial preterists. So they say Jesus will also come in a bodily public way to judge the living and the dead at the very end of history. But what they've done is they've ended up taking a lot of the texts that the church has always understood to refer to the second coming and say, and they've said, well, those don't apply to that. They're actually talking about AD 70. So there's a lot of deep stuff there, but what I want you to get is both those errors try to force us to, to talk about two parousias, two comings in some way. Two comings of Christ after his ascension to heaven. But it's very obvious if you just look at the New Testament text about Christ coming, often that very word parousia, there's no good reason to separate it into more than one coming. No good reason at all. It's a single glorious event, not separate events. And it's an event when Jesus' glory is on full display for all creation to witness. You won't need the eyes of faith to know it's him coming. When it happens, the result will be that every knee will bow 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Though many of them will do it still with evil hearts, about to be damned. Angels and men. But while Paul in our sermon text focuses on the initial moments of Christ's coming and their benefit to Christ's people, he'll go on in chapter 5, as I said, to talk about the doom the wicked will experience when Christ comes. This world's doom, in fact, is what the Apostle Peter emphasizes when he describes the Lord's parousia. Let's turn to 2 Peter 3 briefly. 2 Peter 3. Again, some things I just quickly summarized. Um, if, if you're fuzzy on a lot of those details, go back to when we were in Matthew 24 and 25. We did a whole mini-series on the Olivet Discourse, what Jesus said about the end times, and we went into more detail there. But as we look at what Peter says about Christ's coming, his parousia, he emphasizes uh, what will happen to this world at that event. Second Peter 3, verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his parousia, of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. We'll skip the verses where Peter says they are willfully ignorant that God does things supernaturally that god created the world supernaturally that he flooded it in noah's day supernaturally and he will one day supernaturally destroy it by fire but go down to verse 9 the lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance but the day of the lord will come like a thief by the way the same language paul will use in 1 Thessalonians 5 of this time. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it, um, and there's a textual difference here, uh, or it might be a translational difference too, will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the parousia of the day of God, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him, that is, be found by Jesus when he comes, without spot or blemish, and at peace." As he had said in a verse we, we uh, skipped, uh, verse 7, By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. That's what Christ's coming is for those who aren't his people. It's the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. More on the doom of this world when we get to 1 Thessalonians 5. But returning to verse 15 of our text, now remember where we are in Paul's argument. Christians alive at the Lord's arrival, his parousia, will have no advantage over departed Christians. 
For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Why? Well, verse 16. Verse 16, the very first result of Christ's public arrival will be the resurrection of his people. There will be no delay when Christ comes. That's the first order of business. The resurrection of Christ's people who have died. All believers of all ages. Verse 16. For the Lord himself, he won't just send angels. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout or with a cry of command. Two ways to translate that. With the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is no secret rapture. This is no event which the world blinks and misses. Oh, their clothes are there. Where'd they go? Oh, no. Three sounds, three loud sounds are mentioned here in the same breath. Sounds so loud that they arrest the attention of all creation. And that's the point. You can't miss this in your sleep. These sounds emphasize the glory of the Lord, which is why I'm slowing way down here at this point. These sounds emphasize the glory of the Lord as we've seen it throughout all scripture. The same glory which the Lord God always displays when he descends in power. How fitting as Jesus Christ, the Lord himself, maker of heaven and earth, he descends to destroy the last enemy, which is death itself. First, there's the shout or the cry of command. It was used both in the sense of its loudness as a shout, also often used as a a loud call of command, maybe in the military. Think about that shout or cry of command in in the context of the rest of Scripture. Um, Psalm 18, of course, this is, Not speaking of a literal event here, though Paul is speaking of a literal event. But how fitting that the literal event will reflect literally what what the psalmist said here of how the Lord rescued him. Psalm 18, verse 3. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of shield entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountain trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice. Hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. You sent from on high. 
No, sorry, he sent from on high, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who, who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. And that's what the Lord will do when he rescues his people from the last enemy, which is death. A much shorter text, Psalm 68, verses 32 through 34. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Speaking of the day of Christ's return now, Hebrews 12, 25 through 27. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, at Sinai he's talking about, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made. The removal of creation when God lets his voice be heard. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. What's the point? Well, when the Lord utters his voice, it will not simply cause an earthquake. Though the earth will shake. It will rattle creation to its very core. It will shake death itself so that the dead are shaken loose. They rise with immortal bodies. They emerge from the jaws of death because the Lord lets his voice be heard in a shout. And death releases its grip. <laughs> and in case you're wondering, well, is this God shouting? Oh, yes. John 5, Jesus speaks of the day of the resurrection this way. John 5.21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. They come out in response to Jesus' voice. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Not only is there a shout or cry of command, there is the voice of an archangel. What's that about, Paul? The voice of an archangel. Well, there's this constant emphasis, if you read Jesus' words about the second coming, a constant emphasis that he says, I'm coming with all my angels. Matthew 13, um, in his parables, Jesus said, for instance, in the parable of the, the wheat and the weeds, he said, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Then down in the parable of the dragnet, same chapter. So will it be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Matthew 16, 27. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Likewise, Mark 13, 26, 27. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now, if all the heavenly hosts come with Christ, think carefully here. If all the heavenly hosts come with Christ, if heaven's angelic armies march out together, surely that includes the chief angels. That's what archangel means. It's a chief ruler over angels. Chief commander. And apparently the angel over heaven's armies, Christ's right-hand angel, if you will, the archangel will let his voice be heard as he shouts the order to advance. That's the idea. There's only one angel in the, in the canonical scriptures. There's only one angel named in scripture as an archangel, and that's Michael. Michael the archangel. Jude 9, he's called that. And it's actually reflecting the Greek Old Testament in Matthew 12. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I said Matthew. In Daniel, <laughs> uh, in more than one place, it calls him what in Greek would be like an archangel. But Daniel 12, listen to this, connects Michael with the resurrection. Daniel 12, 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So the Lord Jesus shouts the command for his people to rise from their graves Their bodies reconstituted but gloriously changed. Their bodies fit for immortality in a new creation. And he won't say this time, Lazarus, come forth. He'll just say, essentially, come forth to all his people. No one will be left. And immediately the archangel will order his angels to gather the glorified saints to their Lord. We'll read that again later in Matthew 24. And then to utterly destroy the wicked, both angels and men. Last here in in these three phrases, there's the trumpet of God. Likewise, Paul talks about the trumpet of God in 1 Corinthians 15, famous text about the resurrection. Verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery that is... Something that has now been revealed, which was once God's secret, which was once not clearly revealed, at least. We shall not all sleep. That is, there will still be Christians alive at the coming of Christ. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Notice he doesn't say the whole event will happen in a moment when Christ comes. He says... The change, the transformation of our bodies will happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. I'm hearing Handel's Messiah in my head now. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. 
Now remember, backing up a bit, where is Paul getting his main outline for these events? He said, I say this to you by a word from the Lord. He says that this is the Lord Jesus' word on the subject. So I think Paul, yeah, Paul is making connections with other scriptural teachings. He's drawing some things together. But he's mainly focusing on how Jesus described his own coming as we have it recorded in Matthew 24. Let's turn there, Matthew 24. By the way, another evidence that the two popular errors about Christ's coming that I mentioned before, that they are both in error, is that they both have to do gymnastics to not to be blind to the connections that I'm going to show you now between 1 Thessalonians 4 and Matthew 24. Because neither one of those errors, the dispensational or the preterist, um, can work if if... 1 Thessalonians 4 is the same as Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your parousia, your coming, and of the end of the age? Go down to verse 14. He says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And you drop down to verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, you want to know about that? Again, listen to the Matthew 24 sermons. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Recognize the clouds, the emphasis on the clouds from 1 Thessalonians 4. Coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels, there's the emphasis on angels, with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Implied, the dead as well as the living. All his elect, his chosen ones, will gather to himself. Wherever they are, or as Mark put it, from one end of earth to the other end of heaven. Drop down to verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming, the parousia, of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage... Until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the parousia, the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. The trumpet of God also recalls a number of things from the Old Testament. The trumpet of God recalls how God gathered his old covenant people to himself as he descended on Sinai. Exodus 19 talks about that. How he summoned them with a very loud trumpet blast as a thick cloud was on the mountain. 
And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. We could also go to Leviticus 25, where we find a trumpet proclaiming the year of Jubilee, the year of redemption and release for God's people. The trumpet signals its time. We could go to Numbers 10 and see that God commanded the trumpet to be blown to assemble his congregation either for worshipful celebration or for war. Well, so much for the trumpet of God. We've gone to a lot of trouble to feel the weight, to behold the glory of that moment when Jesus is revealed from heaven. But again, what's Paul's point in describing this scene? The very first result of Christ's public arrival will be the resurrection of his people. Paul ends that verse by saying, and the dead in Christ will rise first. We'll finish our sermon text this afternoon. But as I conclude this section, I, I need to say a word again to those who are not in Christ. You may have misheard me earlier. I said that this hope is only for Christians, only for true believers in Jesus Christ. And that's true. I did not say the resurrection, a resurrection of some sort, is only for believers. You will all be raised from the dead. But not all in the same way at all, or for the same reason at all. If you do not repent and throw yourself on Jesus Christ as your only hope for peace with God... You will rise to meet him on his judgment throne and you will answer for your life of autonomy, your life of rebellion against your maker. Paul said in Acts 24, 14 through 15, but this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust both the just and the unjust, will rise. The dead in Christ will rise first, and they'll rise to glory, but all the dead will rise. Remember John 5, where Jesus said, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of Man and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Pause there. The book of the Revelation presents the second coming over and over from various angles. In various ways. But the angle which it presents in Revelation 20 is the angle of the unrighteous dead. What will happen to them when Christ returns? Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. 
This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. As it says earlier in the book of the Revelation, those in the lake of fire are tormented and have no rest day or night. They receive punishment in their bodies and souls forever in the presence of the Lamb and of his angels, it says. And that's justice. It's doubly justice if you refuse the salvation in Jesus now. But it's Jesus, your judge, who warmly urges you now to receive him as your savior. Your savior from sin and from its penalty. God says, I take no delight in the death of the wicked, rather that the wicked turn from his evil way and live. Why will you die? He says to the wicked. That's the good news. John 5, 21-24 For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You can know today that you don't have to wait for the future to find out if you will receive judgment from God or not. You can know today that you have passed from death to life and are no longer under the judgment of God hanging over you. Believe God and the one whom he sent, his son, Jesus Christ. Likewise, John 640, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day, Jesus says. That person will be mine to raise to glory. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, we haven't even finished this text, but we've tried, we've tried to draw connections throughout Scripture so we will feel its weight and not lightly brush it aside. But Lord, this is your word and you're going to have to apply it in power if it's going to have its rightful effect. Please convict sinners and show them not only the futility of their, their sin and their refusal of Christ, but show them the joy of embracing Christ and of what Christ gives undeserving sinners. Eternal life which is not just to get a new body one day, but which is to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Help us believers to take heart and be reminded today, whatever's been happening day to day in our lives, that's not what matters most. Remind us that we stand on a solid rock of hope. Our faith is not in vain. And our labor in you is not in vain. Convince us of this, Lord. I can't convince them or myself, but you can. So please do it, Father. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.